0: While, we, um, while we're in this message, how you take notes, how you interact. And so I just want to encourage you, you have an amazing role. You're always discipling those around you, but today, especially the little ones are, are watching you. And so I, I encourage you to think how you are encouraging them. Um, one last thing is, uh, as, as my wife talked about a book club, that is one way that we just try to help facilitate more community. Uh, coming around and discussing God's Word and how it changes and shapes the way we live. And so Book Club is an amazing thing. It's something that usually just takes place during the summer. And as we go forward now in September, uh, we're starting up our table groups, which is basically our form of small groups. We encourage you, if you are not yet signed up, uh, there are sign-up sheets in the back. I encourage you, you can... uh, There's you know, just a women's one, a men's one, and then there's, there's a family one. And so I encourage you to sign up there today. If you have any questions, uh, the people with, I don't have mine on today, with the little lanyards, you can talk to them, you can come talk to me, and we'd love to talk to you more about table groups. Um, We're going to go forward now into our message, and if you have your Bibles, I encourage you to turn to Matthew 18. Matthew 18 is where we are going to be, starting in verse 12. And as we already said, we are in a small three-week series on the church. Last week was church membership. This week is church discipline. Next week is church leadership. And then starting September 9th, we will begin our series in Revelation. Now, last week... Chris Gorman, one of our elders, he preached on church membership, and he did a great job preaching it. And one of the things I really liked is that he compared the church, or, compared, uh, or used an analogy to help us understand a little bit of what the church does here. And he used that embassy um, analogy, illustration, if you were here last week. Embassies are located on foreign soil. Embassies affirm the citizenship of those on foreign soil. Uh, embassies also seek to protect and care for its citizens. And embassies represent the rule or government of its home country. And that's very similar to what a church does. A church is a local body, uh, uh, local body of believers who represent the rule and reign Of God here on earth and what we saw last week according to Matthew 16 the church has been given the authority to affirm those who belong in the kingdom of God and that's what church membership largely is when we bring people forward and we bring them into membership it is the affirmation based upon their profession of faith in Jesus that we affirm what we also believe is true in heaven they are members of the kingdom of God of the family of God So that was last week. But what happens when members no longer represent the kingdom? What happens when members with their words and or actions begin to deny the kingdom of God? Or to return back to the embassy analogy, what happens when a citizen commits treason? What happens if the embassy discovers that a person's paperwork has been falsified? That's that's what we're looking at today. Now, church discipline is a touchy subject. Some of you, you might be here, oh man, we're visiting and we chose Discipline Sunday to come on. Um, You might have heard things, maybe you've been in a church where there's, where either they practice it right or poorly, but it just didn't rub you the right way. Um. There's a lot of ways people react. Some people think it's unloving. Some people think it's very uncharacteristic of a church to to discipline. They think, how can a church, that's supposed to be characterized with grace and forgiveness and love and mercy, how could you ever do discipline? That just doesn't seem like it fits together. So my hope is that by the end of the sermon, we would all see the necessity of church discipline, and also that it is to be the normal part of the Christian life life and I think you'll see that as we go through. So our main point is that church discipline is the means in which we pursue sinners and preserve our distinctiveness in this world. That's what we're going to look at today. And so if you have your Bibles, I'm going to ask you uh, to go in and stand and we're going to read Matthew chapter 18 verse 12 through 20. One thing we do here at Timberline is we stand at the reading of the word. It's just a helpful reminder that this is God's word coming with his full authority and inspiration. shall be loosed in heaven. Again I say to you, if two of you agree on on earth about anything, they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. Let me pray. Father, we come, we come now to your word. And Lord, we thank you for your word. We believe it comes with your full authority and all of it is useful for teaching and correcting for instruction, and Lord, I pray that through your word, and the power of your spirit, Lord, give us wisdom, understanding, and instruction today. May this topic that sometimes we, we might want to avoid or we might think is, is uncharacteristic of the church, may we see that the goodness that is here. May we see that it's, it's an act of love towards you and it's a love towards others in this world that we are to live this way and we're to work on church discipline. God, for those who are here who seem apprehensive at this moment, but I pray that your Spirit would place their hearts at rest and help us to see the truth of your Word. May you transform our thinking into the way that your Word instructs us. In your wonderful name, Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. So majority of time we're going to be spending in verses 15 through 20, but I just wanted to point out, in verses 12 through 14, we see that our God and Father desires that none of His sheep will go astray. If one goes astray, He doesn't just say, I got 99 others. Like, that's still passing He doesn't doesn't do that, but rather he lovingly and joyfully leaves the 99 and he goes in search of the one. And he wants to gather that sheep who has wandered away from the flock and bring it back to the flock. So how does he do that? Well, it's through the church. That's verses 15 through 20. The means in which the father pursues his church is through the life of the church. And so we see that in verses 15 through 20. We're going to kind of make our way through three main points. The first one is we're going to see the church is called to respond to sin. We're going to spend majority of our time right there. Second, we see the church has been given authority to respond to sin. And third, we'll look at the promise that God has given to the church as they work and perform church discipline. But we start with the first response. The church must respond to sin. We see a reality right here in the very beginning. If you look at verse 15, if your brother sins against you. So, what does that imply? As Christians, we will. We will sin. We are not perfect. If that popped your bubble. That's probably a good thing. Um, we are not perfect. I am not. You are not. As sinners, we have been saved. We've been adopted into God's family. We've been brought into the kingdom of God. His Spirit now works in us. And yet, we still wrestle and struggle with sin until Christ returns. Which is why Jesus gives us this teaching to the church on how we're to live with one another. In fact, in Romans chapter 7, Paul writes, Paul, who wrote majority of the New Testament, in Romans chapter seven nineteen, says, For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. You ever feel like that? I want to do these things, I want to live righteously and pursue holiness, but there's times I keep stumbling and there's times I, I sin. That is very much the life that we live here on earth. And so there's a response to that, and we read that we're to confront sin. And Jesus gives us kind of a four-step process on what that looks like to confront and correct someone who begins to sin. And it begins with an individual that's kind of step one. And then if the person continues to persist in his sin, we bring two or three others. And then if it continues, we, we bring the church. And if it continues, uh, the person is removed. And so what we're going to do is we're going to walk through each of these steps. And I want you to notice in verse 15 how it starts. This is the first step. Go and tell him his fault. His fault. Jesus commands us to respond to sin. passivity is not an option. We're to go to the one who has sinned and tell him, meaning we expose, we reprove, we bring to light that which is happening. Notice, we're to go to them. You don't look at the person who's struggling on swimming and drowning and saying, well, if you come over here, I'll help you swim better. That's not going to be helpful. But we go to the person who is struggling and we help them as they swim. And the person who has fallen into sin, the person who begins to wonder, we go to them. Remember, we are a body. And as a body, if we see part of the body that is hurting, all of the body looks at how do they attend to that, how do they take care of the part that is hurting. In James chapter 5, verse 19, we read this. If anyone among you wanders from the truth, so this could happen to anyone, it says if anyone sins, if anyone begins to wonder, now notice who brings them back. And someone brings them back. That's who James labels. Someone, meaning If anyone in the church sees someone wondering, that someone is to go to that person. It is not just the work of elders. It is not just the work of the leaders in the church. But this is the everyday activity of the church. We are members of a body. If we see something happening on the body, we attend to that. Confronting sin is to be the normal activity. So let me just kind of flesh this out just a little bit. Uh, If you are a parent, this might be helpful or you might be able to relate quite easily. You have a child and you tell them to go into your room or go to their room and and clean the room and make the bed. A few minutes later, they might come out of the room and the the room is clean, but the bed has not been made. So you go to the child and you say, hey, what, what happened? Did you, you didn't make the bed? And the child goes, oh, I forgot. I still need to do that. So maybe the child goes back in and does that, or maybe you go back in there with the child and help make the bed. That's kind of normal correction that, that that takes place within the church if someone sees uh if, if guys if we see one of our brothers angry i mean just just vehemently angry maybe we see something with one of his kids or, or we see just how he responds to a wife and something or just in some event in life we come up to him and we don't bring rocks to throw but we come up to him and say hey, what what's going on we, we saw yesterday man you you were kind of angry is something going on and we come To walk alongside them, to love on that person—that's the simple, gentle correction that we are to practice every day in the church. And uh, notice—and notice what the goal is. At the end of verse fifteen, we read, "If he listens to you, you have gained your brother." That's the goal. The goal is not to simply be a a fault finder. Oh man, you got angry yesterday. Oh, you lied. I mean, that's not the goal. It's to bring back into alignment with Christ so that we live in a way that honors Him and that glorifies God and that we're able to build one one another up in the body. And so the goal is that we would bring the person who's beginning to wander into sin to bring them back into right fellowship. And let me just plug table groups here for a moment. Um, Table groups is a vehicle that we use, that most churches use, as a means of helping facilitate the growth of more and more relationships within the church. If we're going to know each other, If you're going to know me, if you're going to see when I get angry or whatever it is my sins are, and you're going to be able to help me, then you have to know me or I have to know you. So table groups is a way to help build those relationships. That's what book club does. These are ways that not only do we grow in our understanding of the body, how we serve the body, but also how we just walk with one another that we might build each other up on a daily basis. Basis. So again, if you're not plugged in to table groups, I encourage you sign up today in the back. Come talk to me. I want to help you with that. But see, the problem here is that sin is deceitful. This is why we go to the person. Sin is deceitful. It wants to blind us to the fact that we're beginning to wander away from the sheep, from the church. In Proverbs, it talks about those who who make a practice of sin are setting an ambush for their own selves. Can you imagine that? Setting an ambush, like digging a hole, placing some leaves over it, and then falling into it yourself? That's what it says is what happens when we begin to make a practice of sin. In fact, listen to what Proverbs says in Proverbs chapter 7, verse 21. For the person who's being led astray by their lust. It says, with much seductive speech, she persuades him with her smooth talk. She compels him all at once. He follows her as an ox goes to the slaughter or as a stag is caught fast till an arrow pierces its liver as a bird rushes into a snare. He does not know that it will cost him his life. So here this person's pursuing their lust, going after an adulterous woman, and what it's doing, he's laying a very trap for himself that will cost him his life. Sin wants to lure us away from the church, from the gospel, from worshiping God, and bring us to our death. It wants to rob you of your life and your joy. But when Christ died on the cross, he died so we would have victory over sin. He died so we would no longer be slaves to sin, but rather... Because he has freed us from our sins, we no longer have to be slaves, but we can resist them. We can, um, we can live the way that God has called us to. And so when we confront someone, when we bring to light what, what is happening in their life, what we're doing is bringing the realities of the cross into their life and saying, hey, remember, you've trusted in Christ. You're not a slave to anger. You're not a slave to anxiety. You're not a slave to lust. You're not a slave to these anxieties and we walk alongside them and help them that they would experience the very victory, the very joy, the very life that God has given them in Jesus Christ. That's what we do when we come alongside one another. If we fail to do this, we're letting people continually be deceived and blinded by their sin that they'd be moved over that they would remove themselves from the church. So this is a necessary function that we do so for the person's joy and for the very glory of God that we come alongside one another and we help each other when we begin to wonder and descend. sin. And our hope is that right here in stage 1, verse 15, when just you come to me or I come to you or we go to one another, that most sins would be dealt with right here. And if we practice this, most sins will be pulled out, the root will be exposed here, and we will save one another much pain and misery that if we don't, the person will experience. But what happens if we go to someone and we bring up the sin and they and they refuse to repent if they persist in their sin. Well, stage 2, we go to verse 16. We might take a few others with us. We might take another person or two people with us. Maybe you grab an elder, but it doesn't have to be an elder You might just simply grab someone else who knows this person very well and you go and you confront them and Jesus quotes an Old Testament principle from Deuteronomy 19. What you're doing, you're bringing two or three other people that you might validate the charge. So now you're coming to the person and you're saying, look, I love you and and I'm not the only one who sees this. But this person sees this, and this person sees this, and this person sees it. And we're coming here because we love you, and we're concerned about you. The whole idea is, how do we take this sin, and do we bring it to the light? Because sin wants to remain in darkness. And as it does that, it can keep pulling us away. But as soon as we can bring it to the light, and we can repent of it, then we experience that life and that joy that Christ has given us. So that is our goal. But what happens... If even after we bring another person or two or three people with us and the person continues to persist in sin will we go to what we might say stage three verse 17 now we bring the charge to the church i may say wow you'd you'd bring one person sin and you're gonna air that laundry out in front of everyone isn't that kind of severe yeah it is and it's out of love that we do that because this person is refusing to repent. This person is saying, no, I don't care that one person has come or two or three. I'm going to continue in my lifestyle of unrepentant sin. And so now, because we're in membership and we believe, well, this person's a member of the body. He's part of who we are. We've affirmed that this person is a, is a member of the body of Christ. So we continue to go to them. So we bring it to the church that we might pray for them. That we might pursue them in love. Now let me just pause. We just finished preaching through 1 John. Many of you were here with us. We preached nine weeks through 1 John. Those sermons are up online if you choose to go back and listen to them. Um, But one thing became very, very clear in 1 John. When we come to know Jesus, we experience what we call a new birth, or what the Bible calls a new birth. We become a new person, a new creation. God's Spirit now dwells in us, that we would live in a way that honors God, that glorifies Him, and that we would love one another. And because we become this new creation, the Bible says that we now live this radically new transformed life. And it gave us evidences of what this transformed life looks like. Faith in Jesus, meaning we believe in Jesus and we, we obey what he calls us to do. A love for others, especially a love for the church all throughout 1 John. He continually calls us love the brothers, love the brothers. So there's this love that we have with one another and that we have victory over sin. Now, these evidences, faith in Jesus, love for one another, victory over sin, is what distinguishes us from the world. It's the evidence of our new life in Christ. And so, when someone in the church begins to live in a way that no longer distinguishes them from the world, in a way that denies their citizenship in God's kingdom, we do. We take this very seriously. We cannot affirm Jesus with our lips and simultaneously deny Him with our lifestyle. When we do, we're in effect saying, I can be saved by the cross, but not transformed by the cross. When someone says, look, okay, I can live how I want, don't don't judge me, don't hold me accountable, listen, I can love Jesus, I don't need to be with the church, I can love Jesus, I can do these things, don't judge me. What they're saying is, okay, I want Jesus to save me, but I don't want him to then rule my life. I still want to be in control. I still want to be in charge. And that is a very, very weak and unbiblical view of grace. Because what we see in the Bible is that when God has sent his son Jesus to die, is that he would come and give us a brand new life. A life full of hope, a life full of joy that we would experience as we're with the body. Remember, church membership is the affirmation that we believe one is saved and a part of God's kingdom. And so when we are bringing situations to the church and saying, look, we need to pray for this person. We need to just collectively as a whole pursue them. We're worried about this person's very soul at that moment, which is why we, we, we ask the entire church to help in the pursuit of them. But what happens if the, church, if the person continues to persist? What if they say, you know what, I don't, I don't care that you're praying for me. In fact, I hate that you expose my sin to church. I have no desire to be with you. What does the church do then? Well, think about it maybe like this. What does the embassy do when they find someone who's committed treason? Or what does the embassy do when they find, hey, this person's paperwork. It's not true. They're actually not a citizen. What happens? Do they just ignore it? They lose their citizenship. And here in the church, there's a removal from the church. There's a loss of that affirmation of what we would say that citizenship in God's kingdom. And so we remove, and that's what we see in verse 17. We remove those who persist in sin, and we're called to treat them as a Gentile and a tax collector. Now, Gentile is, is a word used to characterize those who do not believe in the one true God, but uh, very often at this time, they're going to believe in, in multiple gods. It's a pagan lifestyle that they're leaving. A tax collector uh, like, like Matthew, who wrote this letter, a Jewish tax collector is one who no longer has allegiance to Judaism and Yahweh, but has now given its allegiance to Rome. So they have chosen to be an outcast. They have chosen to no longer associate themselves with God's people. And so it says we are to treat them as a Gentile collect- tax collector. They are to be removed from the church. So what I want to do is I just want to ask a few questions. Um, I think the questions are in your bulletin. Just, what does this look like? I think this is something that we kind of wonder at times. And, and we wonder, why is this good? Is this loving? And so I just want to ask a few questions and walk through it. So what does it mean to remove someone from the church? First and foremost, it means that we no longer affirm they are a true citizen in God's kingdom. That's first and foremost. The church says, based upon your persistent, unrepentant heart, we can no longer affirm that you have truly believed in a Jesus and experienced the new birth. And in the Bible, so just many times we go, well, what about assurance? If you go through the Bible, we believe in assurance, and we do. We believe in in the grace that comes and saves us and transforms us. But assurance is always based on present obedience, not past obedience. So we don't go, well, you know, like five years ago, I mean, this person was doing really good things for the church or six months ago or a year ago. And we don't just look at the past, but we go, man, for the last six months, the last year, the last two years, there's been no fruit at all. In fact, the only thing that we see is really unrepentance, only rebellion. And so we don't go, well, well. five years ago we saw good things. And base the assurance off of that, because that's not what we see in God's Word. And I encourage you, look through God's Word. Assurance is always based on our present obedience that's why we're called to persevere and persevere with one another so we would remove them from the membership which we are saying this person is no longer a part of God's family or part of the kingdom of God it also means they're no longer uh, uh able to partake of the Lord's table uh Lord's table is what we do at the end of every service and so uh We call that communion where we take the bread, which represents the body of Christ, and we take the juice, which represents the blood of Jesus. And as we take that, what we're doing as we take that is we're looking back at the cross and we're remembering what Christ has done for us, that he came as a man to die for us so that we could have life and forgiveness. And presently, we remember... Because of what he has done, we have victory over sin now, and we can live as his body. And we also look forward to his return, where we will not just have this meal, but a much greater meal in Revelation 19, the wedding feast, where we'll be joined with Jesus as the groom and the church as the bride. We come together for that wedding feast. This is what this meal anticipates. It is a meal for members who have been saved by the grace of God, looking forward for that union with Christ at that, at that wedding feast. Those are at least two things that it means. So, so you might be sitting here going, this just doesn't sound loving though. I mean, it just seems strange. And I get that. And, and this, is a, this is a hard topic. It's a tough one. But let me just say, it's loving in many ways, in at least four ways. Number one, it's loving to God. We're, we're obeying His word. So the first thing is we're acting in obedience to his word. When we practice discipline, we're saying, God, we love what you love, and we want to live the way you have called us to. Oftentimes, churches or people who say, look, we don't do that discipline thing. What they're in essence saying is, we don't think that's loving. We actually have a better way to love. Now think about the implication of that. God, I know you said love this way, but that's really kind of outdated. We actually have a better way to love than what you prescribed in your word. And so they're choosing to redefine the way that we are to love one another. Um, And on a side note, uh, many of you are military. Many of you know military people. You know, within one, two, or three years, you may very well be leaving this church because you will be um, given orders to move somewhere else. We always encourage, go to membership classes, find out about the churches uh, that you're going to be a part of. But one question you can ask a church, when's the last time you practiced discipline? That doesn't mean the full removal of someone, but when have you you practiced this, 15 through 20, pursuing people? And if they say, oh, we don't do that, I would greatly encourage you just to keep on looking. This is something, it's unfortunate it's not something we look forward to doing in one s es- in one sense but it is a way that we greatly love one another, and it's a command that god has given to the church and so one thing we want to encourage you to this is a practice that we are to practice and when you look for at different churches that I, I would use as a means of just where they at in obedience to scripture and, and what does membership mean to them Uh, second it's loving to the church it's a way of protecting the church for one if this person is coming and they're a wolf they're teaching false doctrine they're they're moving people away from the community from the word of god the most loving thing you can do is get rid of the wolf right you don't let wolves come into the sheep pen they kill sheep so you you shoot the wolf you remove the wolf from the sheep pen um now, that doesn't mean that every person who gets removed is going to be this wolf. Um, sometimes, uh, sometimes they're not. So you're loving the church because not only you are you removing, but you're also reminding the church of the transformation that takes place in Christ. When we come to know Jesus, we experience this new birth. So as we practice church discipline, we're reminding, there's a new birth. Christ works in us. We should expect to see the fruit of God working in us. So we're loving the church, encouraging the church. Are, are you seeing the fruit grow in you? Are you living in accordance to the way that God has called you to live? Um, and just to remind you, when we go back to like Acts chapter 5 and we see Ananias and Sapphira, which is this like crazy situation um, back in uh, the beginning of, of the birth of the church, what we see is Ananias and Sapphira, they come, they lie to Peter, and at that moment they're struck down and killed. Just so you know, that doesn't really happen a lot anymore. And we can go into that kind of other reasons later. Uh, but you know what happened just a few verses after that? The church shrunk completely. No, it says the church grew. Church continued to grow. As the church understands the holiness that it has been called to and that Christ is working in the church in this transformed life that we are to now live, there is great growth that takes place in that. Third, it's loving to the unrepentant sinner. Now, uh, just so you know, there's another instance in the Bible, a very clear one, which addresses church discipline. And you can read the whole part in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. But in 1 Corinthians 5, Paul addresses the church of Corinth. And he says, listen, you got a guy in your church sleeping with his mother-in-law. And you're being arrogant by not dealing with it. And so he's calling them out because they've ignored this sin. And so this is what he says in verse 5 of chapter 5 of 1 Corinthians. You are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. So the, the, delivering this man to Satan, remove them from the fellowship of the church. You cannot have someone sleeping with their mother-in-law and saying, I'm, yep, I'm a believer. That just doesn't happen. So he says, remove them? But why? What's the goal? so that his spirit may be saved in the day. The goal is always for the love of the person also. Don't miss that. A child, when, when you discipline them, you spank, they're not going, man, my, my parents love me so much right now. I'm so thankful. We, we don't base, um, we don't define if an act is loving, if the person being disciplined sees it loving at that very moment. Many of you know, many of you have experienced great discipline from your parents. I experienced much, much discipline from my parents. And now as I look back, I still don't like it, but I look back and I say, man, they loved me. And that was good that they disciplined me. And there are countless stories of people who have been removed from the church, who have just been mad and angry. And maybe it took them six months or a year or five years but then eventually have come back to the church and they will say that was one of the single most effective things the church has ever done for them. That was a turning point in their life. So it's loving for the person. Fourth, it's loving to the world. I want you to think about this. The world often accuses the church of being hypocritical. Could it be that we become too tolerant of sin? Like We're called to, to reach out to the world. So often what we do is well, how do we be loving to people? And how do, we, how do we be so loving to people that they're really comfortable around us all the time? But the problem is, if the church is really comfortable around, or if the world is really comfortable around the church all the time, we're probably doing something wrong. Right? Was Jesus the most liked person? No. The, he was crucified. He was hated. Now, we're not looking to be hated by the world, but... But as we love and as we live the way God has called us to, there'll be some people from the world that that will come to know Jesus, and others are going to be very, very angry. But what we're doing is letting them know what does a Christian look like? What does the gospel do? What does it look like to live a transformed life by the very grace of God? And so when we practice discipline, we show the world, look, we're not saying we're perfect, but we 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 don't believe that we're to be hypocritical either. And so we practice church discipline as a means of helping uh, present a clear picture to the world of who Christ is and what his body looks like. Um, I think one question that we sometimes have is, well, what sins merit removal? And so I, I was reading a book not too long ago um, by Jonathan Lehman uh, called Church Discipline, and it was helpful, and, and we can make that available for you. Light. Uh, but word of caution, we don't blow the whistle on every sin. You ever watch a basketball game and they blow the whistle on every single foul? And you're just, I mean, you're frustrated as a spectator. The players are frustrated because they're not able to do anything and everything is getting called. I would say the majority of times that we get offended with one another, it's because just simple miscommunication. You know, we just need to extend grace. First Peter 4.8 says love is meant to cover offenses. So most things that we get upset about, love can just simply cover those offenses. But Jonathan Lehman, he writes in his book, and he basically says, okay, there are sins that we can expect, and there are sins that we cannot expect. Now this, this might sound sounds a little strange saying it like that, but to say that we might expect certain sins doesn't mean they're acceptable. There's a big difference there. We're not saying it's okay to do these sins, but he kind of talks about it like this. We know that as Christians, we will struggle sometimes with anxiety. We'll struggle sometimes with lying in certain circumstances. We might occasionally drink too much. We might lose our temper at time. We might struggle at lust with lust at certain levels. So there's things that we can, we know, okay, as Christians, these are things that we're going to wrestle with. But then he says, there are also sins that, that we don't expect. The person who gets drunk every night the person who seduces other people for sexual favors, the person who perpetually lies, the person who embezzles money from the work, the one who cheats on their spouse, the one who refuses to gather with the church. He says, these things would be kind of, if there's an invisible line, these things would be the things that we say, we do not expect that regular believers who are growing in their walk with God would be practicing. And so uh, what I found was helpful though is rather than trying to define lines and all, um, the bottom line is when someone is persistently unrepentant, that's when they're to be removed. When they refuse to repent of sin. And I would just tell you, this is hard. It takes wisdom, it takes discernment on how to go about this. And circumstances play into it also. And so this is something that I encourage you, when you're looking at, at confronting someone after you've done it, and you're bringing two or three, it's done in prayer. When we bring it to the church, it's done in prayer. When we wrestle with, and I think we've done everything we can, and we, have to, we, we, we pray, and we pray, and we pray. Um, this is hard. And so we want to be careful on this. How quick should someone be removed? Well, Matthew 18 gives kind of a four-step process. And so the idea then is most people say, well, we just logically go from step one, two, three, four, and you probably have heard something like that. Um, You know, don't blaze through them. Spend time on each one. I held that view for a long time. Um, But 1 Corinthians 5 also sheds light a different way. In 1 Corinthians 5, Paul does not say, Send someone to that guy who's sleeping with his mother-in-law and talk with him. Wait a month if he refuses. Send a small group. Wait a month after that. Gather the church together. See what you guys think you should do. Now he says in verse 13, purge the evil person from among you. He jumps straight to step four. He's in another city. He's hearing about this sin and the arrogance of the church. And so he says, no. If that's taking place, that person needs to be removed right now. And so, what that has done to me and say, okay, we need to be careful. We don't want to jump to any conclusions. But what we need to do is really base it upon when do we believe the person is is persistently unrepentant in their sin, and that's a hard thing to wrestle with. Sometimes it might be quicker. Sometimes it might be much, much longer. Um, You might have other questions. If you want, you can text them in. If we have time, we'll we'll address some of those. Uh, But real quick, so what authority do we have as a church to do this? That's the next large point. And what we see is the church has been given the authority to affirm and deny membership in the kingdom. So last week, Chris Gorman preaches on membership, and he points out from Matthew 16, the church has been given the, the authority, the judicial right, to affirm those who are in the kingdom of God. Now, as we come to verse 18, we see the church has also been given the right to remove those. It says, um, in verse 18, whatever the church binds on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatever you shall loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. So the church by Jesus authority has been given the right to either bind or to loose talking about those who are in the kingdom. Um, Now, what the Greek tense shows is that when we lose someone, is that God is not going, oh, okay, so so they're out? Okay, are they in? So he's not taking notes from us and keeping his roster up to date because of what we do. But the Greek tense shows that when we act in this way, we're doing what we believe is already true in heaven. Does that make sense? So our affirmation is really the echo of what is already true in heaven. So when we bind, we're binding because we believe, man, we believe this is true in heaven. When we loose, we don't believe you are a citizen of God's kingdom, and so we have loosed you. So that's kind of what that means there. So again, it's not our declaration that makes it effective. We are simply affirming um, or denying what we believe is already true in heaven. And so Jesus has given the authority to the church to do this. Um, but he's also given us these promises, and we see these in verses 19 and 20. The church has been given two promises, and, and look at verse 19. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything, they ask it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. I think what we have here is God is promising his support, Jesus is saying, when members of the church come together, when you're praying for wisdom, when we pray for discernment, when we pray for boldness, when we pray for grace, we can rest. God's going to answer these prayers. We can rest in that. That we're not just, man, we think we need to go forward with this, or we don't think we need to go forward with this, man. but we can rest assured God is working in our prayers and answering them and helping us. We're also told in verse 20, um, that we are promised Jesus' presence. It says, for where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. Now, just so you know, this is like one of the most abused passages in Scripture. You've heard it. Someone, you know, you're in a small gathering. Well, we know Jesus is with us because there are two or three of us gathered right now. I mean, if one of you leave, he might not be with us. So we at least need two, preferably three, because now we know Jesus is with us. But, I mean, is that even true? You're like, wait, is it? When we believe in Christ, who dwells in every single believer? The Spirit of Christ. We saw that in 1 John. He gives us his seed that now abides in us. In John 14 and 15 and 16, we see he's given us the helper, his spirit, to live within us. You always have God's presence with you. Like, you know that, right? Like, you don't have to go get a buddy to then make sure your your prayers are going to work. Like, you always have God's presence with you. So, it's just applied wrong a lot of times. But what we have in the context here is that it seems that Jesus is promising His presence. When you have two or three people gathering and they're trying to address sin, you just, just know that God is with you. Know that His Son is with you, persevering you, helping you, giving you that wisdom as you confront sin in this world. Um, if you look back at verses 12 through 14, that, that beginning passage, remember, our Father loves His sheep. He loves the church. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, our Father loves you. He loves you so much, and He pursues His sheep, and He wants all of them together, and when one parts, He goes, and He goes after it, that He would joyfully, lovingly bring that sheep. So you just know, if you wonder, Father's going to pursue you. And you know how he does it? It starts with one person from the church coming to you. So what I want to encourage us as, as, we, as we close on this is I know it's easy to go, hey, someone should talk to that guy. Not me. Now, I, I, don't, I don't want to be the guy. I mean, that, that's not really my place. Who am I to judge? But what, what we've seen, is this is the role of every single person is that when we see someone, we're to go after them. And you are the very means, on an individual level, we start as the very means in which God brings his sheep back. And so let's not hide behind, I don't want to confront, I know that gets kind of weird, and I don't want to make this person uncomfortable. Well, let's go to one another. Now, let's remember that 1 Peter 4.8, love covers just about everything, so we don't need to be whistleblowers. But there's things we do need to confront. Let's not hide behind our fear, but let's be comforted by God's truth in his word, and his presence with us, that we can go to one another. And we can have great hope that God's going to work through us, that, that these people who begin to wonder, if it's you, if it's me, if it's any of us, that God is going to work to bring us back in to his flock. And so I encourage you, we want to make that a regular practice of the church, and that's hard. So as we get in table groups, one of the things we want to do regularly is is just walk with each other, pray with each other, encourage one another. Um, But let us remember that as we practice this, this is the very joy that the Father has, that we practice this, this discipline, this gentle correctiveness. And at times, at times it leads to removal. But our goal is that when we do this quickly and gently, that most things will all be dealt with very quickly and that we will be able to experience that fellowship with the church. So I'm going to pray um, and then we'll move into our, our time of communion. Father, we thank you for this day. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you love your sheep and you will bring your sheep back. And we pray that they always come back right away. We pray that on an individual level when we confront that God majority of time that you would bring them back but we know sometimes you don't Lord, I pray that we would be obedient as a church I pray that we'd be bold as members of this body and that we would love this body as you love this body God help us to not hide behind fear and insecurities of not coming up to one another But Lord, may we know that you have called us and saved us to live a new transformed life. And may we come alongside one another that we help each other experience the truth and the grace and the riches that your son Jesus has already purchased for us at the cross. Father, we love you. In your name, Jesus, amen.